0: So we're going to keep going in our Guide to the Psalm series. Uh, this is Chapter 5, The Nature of Hebrew Poetry. And then uh, we're going to look today at eight literary devices that are used in biblical imagery. So I've been having a little trouble in my heart and mind sort of organizing the material and my thoughts for this. So we actually, the two most important characteristics of Hebrew poetry are biblical imagery and parallelism and so we uh i think in chapter three we talked about biblical imagery i think that was the case it's reviewed there somewhere um and then chapter four we looked at parallelism i guess if i if we end up writing this into a book someday i'll probably reorder this and put after we talk about imagery we'll we'll use this so that we can focus more on imagery uh, because then next week, I'm actually hopefully if I get through all the eight uh, literary devices that I want to talk about uh, today, next week we'll look at some more detailed things about parallelism, like there's synthetic parallelism and, uh, and so forth. We'll look at all the different kinds of parallelism. Now, as we look at these literary terms today, here's something to keep in mind. It's not that important if you can remember the terms. It's just important that you kind of know what they are, so that you know to look for them, so you'll get more understanding out of your reading. So if you can't, if you're uh, seeing, uh, for instance, an apostrophe, and you can't remember the term for it, but you still, but you remember what it is, it'll help you see that oh, this is a literary device that's meant to bring out this point. So. Some of these uh, have a high degree of overlap. In fact, most of the eight that we'll talk about today have a high degree of overlap with any poetry that you would be studying uh, or reading, and and some of them just plain any literature, especially any uh, nonfiction literature, or any fictional literature, I mean. So let's, uh, so let's jump all the way down to about two-thirds of the way down to three-quarters of the way down, I'd say, on the front page, and we'll look at where it says today, chapter 5, eight literary devices used in biblical imagery in the Psalms. And the first one, you should all know this already, is called a simile. And a simile is just a comparison usually linked together by using comparative words such as uh, with regard to or like or as or such as, something like that. So uh, I have a f- few examples for each one. So Psalm 102.6, I, I actually originally had it in four different translations because I liked them all, but I uh, had to uh, edit a little bit out to uh, get it all on two pages. But uh, this is probably one that's worth looking at in the New American Standard and the New King James as well. But in uh, the New King James, uh, or I should see the NET as well, I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. So whenever you see that like, that's, uh, so what we have there is actually both, you have both a simile and a parallelism in one verse. Okay. Um, Psalm 1026 in ESV says, I am like a desert owl. Of the wilderness. Some of the Hebrew words for things like different kinds of bird species and stuff are a little bit difficult to translate, so you'll see pelican and owl, even though those are not the same kind of birds. It's because they really don't know exactly what kind of bird that was. Um, But it was the kind of bird that you'd find in the wilderness. (laughs) I'm like an owl in the waste places. so in uh next week we'll start looking at parallelism just uh what do they call that and the news they call it a t so i'm um, uh, gonna tell you right now that that's a static or synonymous or emphatic parallelism those are all kind of s- synonymous words uh static means that the two par- parts of the parallelism say the same thing so it's also called a synonymous they mean the same thing um, I emphatic is my own term. I'm not shy about, uh, if I don't think all the literature out there, uh, has all the right ways of describing biblical things, I go ahead and invent my own terms. Uh, so you won't see that in any b- books about the Bible emphatic, but you will see static or synonymous. But the point of a parallelism in Hebrew poetry is to emphasize it. That's the whole point. To say it twice is to, to say, listen up, this is important. That, that's the reason it, it, it repeats it twice or three times. In fact, if you want an interesting study, I, I remember one time I did some intensive studying in the book of Matthew for a while, and I noted uh, in the margin, all the time Jesus repeats the same idea in Matthew. So I would put like, I used the word attestation, so I put 1A, 2A, 3A, when he repeated the same idea in different, different uh, speeches that he gave in, in the book of Matthew. And whenever the Lord repeats himself, he's kind of saying, I want you to hear this. Okay, so that a lot of what, uh, when, when it's synonymous parallelism or static parallelism, it's to, to emphasize it. It's to be... Uh, uh, emphatic, and I, uh, so also we're going to learn about, uh, I think today we're going to learn about personification, aren't we? Because personification kind of goes along with term number uh, seven, anthropomorphism, and that's when you basically assign like um, human-like characteristics to animals or things. So both of those, all, all of those are happening. It's, uh, it's got a simile, a static parallelism and a uh, personification all in one verse for no extra charge. Uh, Psalm 37.1 says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. I always like the word fret. Don't be like afraid. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Isn't there a temptation to, be th- to do that, right? Don't you see sometimes that it looks like the the evil people are getting away with stuff? And temporarily, they do. For they will soon fade like the grass in August. Uh, I always like uh, how green the grass looks, and then they mow it, and once it's cut off from its root, it dries up pretty quick. Uh, For they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herbs. Again, similes, and uh, the second uh, verse in that is a static. uh, Well, both of them are actually static uh, parallelisms or synonymous parallelisms. All right, so let's go on to the second term, metaphor. A metaphor is a lot. It's difficult to keep straight with a simile sometimes. So the key is to remember that simile will have a comparative word like like or as. But metaphor just says the Lord is my shepherd, or what have you. We probably used that one. Yeah, we did. A comparison usually, to, usually not linked together by using comparative words, such as like or as or whatever. Um, so the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you Google uh, metaphors in the Psalm, every website you find will use that one as their example. That uh, for some reason that's a uh, Really common verse. Um, now, so again, foreshadowing next week, I couldn't, I, I had much more of this throughout the whole teaching, but again, I ran out of space, so I had to eliminate some of them. So you're only going to get them on the first couple points, but at least you'll see where we're going next week. So next week, we'll look at verses like that, and we'll say, the metaphor is in the first cola, that is, the Lord is my shepherd. But the, uh, the two of them, is this, uh, the second part is what's called a synthetic or progressive parallelism. What that means, different than a static or synonymous parallelism, is it's actually saying something different, but it's not saying something the opposite. That's another one we'll look at is an opposite uh, type parallelism. But it's saying something that's a progression. Because the Lord is my shepherd, the result of that is going to be I shall not want. We're we're going somewhere with it. Okay? And so um, uh, the reason you don't need to want is if you're making the Lord your shepherd, you won't need to want. You shall not want. So both colas together uh, form a progressive parallelism. Okay? And we'll look at that more Next week. Now, this is where. Shoot, I lost my pen. Here it is. This is where I was going to uh, see if I see if I can make this work. I am uh, going to hit how to pronounce this next word in mydictionary.com. Metonymy. Metonymy. Is it coming through the speakers? All right. Metonymy. There you go. Metonymy. Uh, That way I get it right. I found out after the teaching last week when we were talking about uh, strophes, that um, they're they're pronounced stroph or strophy. They're both, uh, both pronunciations are used. There was another word we had like that too last week. Do you remember what it was? Probably not. (laughs) Well, what was it? Couplets and triplets, are that is used as well, even though I didn't know that. I thought I sort of made that one up. Um, all right, so let's look at uh, an example of... Metonymy. Metonymy. All right. <laughs> hey, audiovisual aids, what do you know? We're, we're, really, we're really getting modern here. All right. Now, uh, Psalm 5, 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So you're getting a lot of stuff here. Uh, first of all, that's metonymy. Uh, and there's a metaphor there. Their throat is an open grave is a metaphor. Uh, and, and uh, metonymy is uh, a figure of speech consisting of the use of a name of one object or concept for another. So when it's saying their throat is an open grave, there's two metonymies in there. One, it's trying to say their throat, which means their, their speech, their words. You know, you can't speak without air coming through your throat. And an open grave is uh, kind of graphic, but it's kind, of, uh, you know, not exactly a joyous thought. It's where there's a lot of corruption. There's, of course, death, uh, darkness, sadness, etc. Uh, and it's saying, uh, you know, they have destructive words in their mouth. So um, now, um, the the two the two lines there form uh form uh a parallelism and it's again a static or synonymous or emphatic parallelism and it has a structure of A B B A. So their their truth there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, compares to the open grave compares to destruction, and the flattery of their tongue compares to mouth. So uh so, the first line matches the fourth line, and the second line matches the third line. So, the structure is A, B, B, A. Everybody got that? So, if you can kind of start to get a feel for that, which is not that hard, uh, you'll get more out of the Psalms as you read them. So, all right, now let's uh, go on. Psalm 24:4 is a very popular one, as you know, like, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a and a pure heart, and so forth. So, verse four: He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, So that's a metonymy, because the hands represent your outward actions in life. Whenever you see like God's hand is not so short that He cannot save, it's saying He's able to do this. You work with your hands, okay? It's saying it's it's talking about performance or accomplishment or or the power of God to actually make something happen. So a person with clean hands is a person whose outward life is godly. A pure heart speaks of your inward life, your attitudes, your motivations, uh, um, and and those sorts of things. So then uh, then the second part of the parallel says, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So again, there's an ABBA structure to that one. It's a static or synonymous uh, parallelism where it's saying the same thing, but the first line, um, he who has clean hands, matches uh, the one does not swear deceitfully at the end. One matches four again. Uh, because the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. Matthew 12:34. So one of the actions that we all do, even uh, Jonathan and Robbie Johnson, who's on vacation, I shouldn't pick on them, they're two of the quieter guys you might ever know. But they still speak, right? So they have actions. <laughs> and that includes their speaking. I've, been, I've actually been there on a Thursday night when Robbie's led the book group. And he speaks plotting, He asks questions. He leads the group, and so forth. So he's taking action. Uh, so um, again, the hands represent your actions, as does uh, you know what comes out of your mouth. Um, the The pure heart part. Uh, the second. The second phrase corresponds to who does not lift up his soul to what is false. To, to uh, lift up your soul to what is false is to have lying and deceitfulness be in, in your soul. Now, we, of course, lie and deceive one another, but don't we always try to lie and deceive God too sometimes, right? Like we're trying to fake God out, like he doesn't really know what's going on in our heart. And we do that all the time. And in fact, the reason we need Scripture and the Holy Spirit is, as James brings out, the the Word of God is a mirror to our soul. The Word of God helps us see what's really going on in there. And when you have a a breakthrough in terms of illumination or understanding the Word of God and the heart of God and the the person of God more, it it often comes in in the form of seeing what you were missing, seeing all along, and all of a sudden your eyes are opened to, uh, you know, a lot of corrupt things in your attitudes and motivations that you didn't even realize were there. Who's ever had that experience? (laughs) Nobody? No one's volunteering. (laughs) You're all deceived in in, in your heart. (laughs) You've all had corruption in your heart that you didn't know about. Right? And the Lord showed you uh, through you know, sister so-and-so or uh, scripture you were reading or the Holy Spirit putting his uh, light on it. And uh, sometimes don't you go through it when God is de- ready to deliver you. I was talking with somebody about this yesterday. Um, it, often it seems like it gets worse for a while before it gets better, doesn't it? Like when you start focusing on an area that, you, that the Lord starts showing you you need freedom from, and you didn't realize it before, one of the things he does is he intensifies the light, and uh, so all the, and he magnifies, you know, he corrects your lenses, so all of a sudden you see it more and more and more, and then you begin to realize, I thought I was proud, but now I realize, man, I've got a pride issue, right? And sometimes it gets so pervasive in your heart and mind, this is a what I call knowing the ways of the Lord, you need to know this. If you don't, if, if anything I'm saying here is new to you, then you probably haven't gone very far with the Lord yet. Uh, one of the things that you need to experience is that as God is, is, if God is dealing with you about an area, it'll get very big in your heart and mind, and and you'll see like this is really filthy or this is really. Gross or man, I've really got a lot of selfish ambition here, or or I'm man, I'm a lot lazier than I ever thought I was, or you know, my procrastination issue, whatever, whatever you're, you know, he's putting his light on, it'll get huge and it'll get so huge, and you're not ready to really get set free until it gets so huge that you don't see any possible way of delivering yourself from it. Because there is no possible way to deliver yourself from it. The Lord himself must deliver you. And has already and will. And so you're actually, it seems like things are going really bad. Because the, the light of the Lord is opening up something. Uh, in terms of your inner motivations and your attitudes. And um, it seems so pervasive that you hopefully get to a place where you see it as kind of hopeless. And you need to get your eyes off you and get your eyes on him. Because it's not hopeless. It's just hopeless in and of yourself. Right? So you'll see that all the time in the Psalms. Now... See if I can type in the next word. I had these all pre-set up on my laptop, and I forgot to bring my laptop. All right. Synecdoche. 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 Everybody repeat after the thing. No. Synecdoche. 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 All right. Catherine was teaching me how to pronounce that one. Uh, So, uh, synecdoche is a figure of speech in which the part represents the whole, or the whole is used for the part. Or it can be a figure of speech in which the general is used for the specific, or which the specific is used for the general. And ironically, Psalm 24, 4 has a synecdoche as well as Metonymy. Metonymy. Um, So, Psalm twenty-four, four says, "He who has a clean, clean hands and a pure heart." Of course, your hands there represent the whole of your uh, physical being. Your heart there represents your spirit and soul. All the parts. Your spirit has uh, three parts: your intuition your conscience and your, uh, the temple where God's uh, spirit or other spirits can dwell. Your soul has three parts, your mind, your emotion, your will. And all of that is represented in this synecdoche by uh, the phrase "a pure heart. Uh, and lo- Often in scripture, your heart is, refers to your whole inner being. And especially at the seat of where the essence of who you are is, Your attitudes, your motivations. Your attitudes and motivations uh, direct your life like a rudder does a ship. So, again, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, I put Psalm 119, 160 there, which says, The sum of thy word is truth. Uh, on purpose because um, I actually read a very interesting article, but I decided uh, there was a quote that was about, would have taken up about four or five lines and I was, uh, you know, a little out of space. Uh, but the article I read was kind of a demonstration of that synecdoches are all through the whole Bible and that they're super important because um, they help you see the sum of God's work. And, and you really need to take them seriously. So I wish I had uh, had more room on my outline. What I probably need to do is have a separate little outline some, sometimes. I've, I do that sometimes, but I uh, didn't think of that at 6 in, in the morning this morning or 5 in the morning, whenever I was working on this part of it. Um, Psalm 44.6 says, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. So, the reason that's a synecdoche is bow and sword represent weapons of warfare or military power in general, and actually, in some cases, they represent the whole use of the whole army, right? And it's basically contrasting that, nor can my sword save me. Again, there's a parallelism. Uh, I can't trust in my bow, nor can my soul save me. Trust and save are always related. And what it's basically saying is the only person you can trust is Yahweh, right? So don't trust in, um, in your military might or your strength or whatever. Uh, trust in the Lord. Let's move on to hyperbole. Now, hyperbole is the one that never gets me in trouble, ever, ever. Because I would never, never use hyperbole in a million years. (laughs) Now, hopefully you understood that that was a use of hyperbole. (laughs) I would never use hyperbole in a million years. Honest. (laughs) Um, So hyperbole is an obvious exaggeration to drive home or emphasize a point. Hyperbole is used a lot by the prophets, some prophets more than others, and hyperbole is used a lot by Jesus. Okay, it's use of an extravagant statement that's not meant to be taken literally, but to focus attention on the importance of this issue. So I would never use hyperbole in a million years as a good use of hyperbole. Because most of you aren't going to live for a million years, at least on this earth. Right? So, hyperbole is actually one of the uh, um, literary characteristics of, of lots of parts of the Bible that, that go along with imagery. To, and it's kind of an overstating things. But it's kind of, you know, Jesus does it a lot just to sort of shake you up. You know, if your i if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, does he really want you to cut your hand off? Uh, no, he doesn't. Somebody said yes, but you know, do you know why he doesn't? Because your hand's not the cause of your sin; your heart is. But he's saying you need some radical surgery. Cutting your hand off is probably not going to help you. Uh, I imagine I've never been blind yet. I hope not to be, but I uh you know, hope to live long enough that maybe that becomes an issue when I'm 85 or 95 years old and and uh uh but I imagine blind people still lust. Right? And people without hands still overeat or or whatever. The issue's not your is is uh But he is saying it's that important because what do we all do with sin? We all, I'm going to use really intense vocabulary here, we all poo-poo sin, meaning uh, not poo-poo in the sense of doo-doo, but poo-poo in the sense of we treat it as like not that important. Oh, yeah, I was uh, rude to my roommate again. Don't we? Sometimes uh, the, the way we, tr- you know, my father always taught me uh, the, the, the mo- most important place to live your walk with Christ is in your own home, among your own family members. And that's exactly where God's called you to do it. And that's the hardest place to do it. And that's why single households are such a great preparation for marriage and family life. Because if you can, you know, uh, if you have like a single household where everyone's like, that was your chore, it wasn't mine. How, how many times do, does someone do the other person's chores when they don't need to be? Or, you know, like, how, where, how, how gracious are we? How serving are we? How, do we, how much do we go be above and beyond the call of duty? Right? All right, so let's read a few hyperboles. I put a few examples in here. Um. Then the earth shook and quaked. (laughs) I kind of like that, right? Uh, Well, there are such things as earthquakes, and it does shake. As far as I know, the whole earth doesn't shake and quake. Uh, Although, we'll talk to the Lord about that when you get to heaven. And the foundations of the mountains were trembling. I've never seen any mountains that were trembling. That's the problem with the whole... Fundamentalist evangelical thing about taking the word of God literally, <laughs> like it's a liter piece of literature. You're supposed to take it in a literary way when it's using literary, uh, you know, devices and so forth. So, uh, and the foundations of the mountain were trembling because and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke. Went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth, mouth devoured, coals flamed forth from him. Now, does anybody know the context of that without looking? So, when he was defending the psalmist, right? So, so many times, I actually meet with people who what we're dealing with is they have a feeling that God is sort of frustrated with them, that God has sort of given up on them, that they've sinned too much and they can't be forgiven, and they're just such a lousy... Guess what? Everyone in this room is a lousy Christian. (laughs) Right? And everyone in this room has been captured by various bad attitudes, bad motivations, Bad habits, uh, fears, people struggle with things like discouragement, uh, melancholy. You know, today, you know, there's all these medicines about depression all the time. I, you know, uh, I can tell you, in the first few years of this church, I was in kind of a major battle with being moody and melancholy and so forth. And uh, both uh, Carla, whose birthday is today, and uh, John helped me through that. But you know what? People go through stuff like that. And the Lord is, we think the Lord's like mad at you. But actually it's about, this verse is about the Lord got ticked at the things that were holding you back. Really ticked. So that the mountains quaked. And he's about to come punch your enemies in the mouth. And I'm not trying to treat, you know, the prosperity gospel. You're about to have a breakthrough and so forth. But sometimes I think we underestimate how much God is for you. Zephaniah 3 says he has come to save you. And if something is trying to resist that salvation, he's going to be really peeved. I used to... Better word. I guess that's an okay word. I don't know, actually. But he's, he's gonna, he can get a little angry. You know, I love to tell the testimony of my friend Anwar, who uh, three weeks after we prayed for him to receive Christ, then he opened up his sins that he should have before we prayed to receive Christ. But he comes and says, You know, uh, my dad's been sending me $10,000 a semester to be going to school. And I haven't been in school for like three years. I've just been using the money to party. <laughs> and uh, I'm actually here. He was in. He was on a, here on a visa, so he was in. Now he was an illegal alien because he hadn't been a student in three years. He was here on a student visa. And his, and he had been lying to his dad about you know how he's using the ten thousand dollars. He wasn't paying tuition or books at UD. He was you know buying beer and smoking weed and, and having good times with young ladies. And now he came to Christ and he says to me, do I need to call my dad and tell him what I've been doing? And I said, oh, you really do. <laughs> and he said to me, but Pastor Greg, you don't understand how angry Middle Eastern fathers can get. He was from Lebanon. And I said, Anwar, you don't understand how angry God can get. <laughs> But God is, is actually, uh, Psalm 18, he's more angry at the things that are destroying you than he is at you. And he's able to crush them. That's what Psalm 18 is saying. He can lift you out of the mire and put your feet on a rock psalm forty two three the first part of the verse part A my tears have been my food day and night now I don 't know about you, but most people here I doubt if they 've eaten too many meals that were just tears. <laughs> some of you may have gone through uh times of crying I certainly have i 'm wonder if i 'm related to Jeremiah the weeping prophet some days i guess I'm, you know uh, some days I you know cry the whole day, but um but I usually don't eat them, <laughs> so obviously it's a metaphor and uh, it's it's a, an exaggeration. It's a high, uh, and normally your tears aren't really all day. Even when I said just now that sometimes I cry all day, maybe two or three hours of the day. Uh, I put writer's embellishment there. I I can't remember if it was uh, Jay Leno or. Uh, David Letterman, but one of those late-night comedians uh, that I used to watch years ago, the current ones, I can't handle them, so I haven't watched any in a few years because uh, they're all just left-wing hate, hate, hate anymore. But anyway, um, at least uh, Jay Leno used to be somewhat of an equal opportunity hater. He sort of made made fun of both parties, which is not doesn't happen anymore. Uh, but in any case... Uh, they used to have this feature where they would have somebody in the audience tell a story, and then they 'd take it up to a certain point, and then they would do, flash on the screen writer's embellishment, <laughs> and then the person would tell some outlandish ending to the story and uh you know one of the things I wrestle before the Lord with is selective memory. And, you know, sometimes over the years, my stories get a little better, you know, know, a little more exciting, a little more adventurous than it really happened that way. Um, It's called entertainment. All right. Psalm 107, 26, they rose up to the heavens, they went down into the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. I believe the, the context there. Somebody look up the context. I think it's actually talking about a ship in a storm, isn't it? Um, but again, uh, you know, if, if they were riding a massive storm, they didn't really rise up to the heavens, right? They didn't really go down to the depths of the sea. I love those... Um, Videos, uh, you know, you get like the animal planet, like blue planet and all that. We, ha- we-, we have tons of that stuff. <laughs> and I love the ones where they go down into the deep dark sea where there's no light that gets through there and all the weirdness of the things that are down there. Um, I doubt their soul melted. Has your soul ever melted? <laughs> it's hot. Today. It's so hot today, I think my soul is melting. <laughs> <laughs> So hyperbole. Next thing, apostrophe. Uh, Apostrophe is when a verse addresses an inanimate thing as if it were a person, and a person not present as if they were present, or an imaginary person if they were present. So Psalm 24-7 is a great example. He's talking to the gates of, of 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 Jerusalem and the temple. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Now, that doesn't actually even make sense if you're a literalist. It's beautiful if you're a (laughs) literarist. I just made that word up, I think. (laughs) But it's a good one. You know, it's interesting that the, the, you know, uh, the most famous Protestant ever is Martin Luther, of course. Uh, He started what it means to be a Protestant, and he Talked about learning to read scripture in a literary way, and uh, somehow it got turned into the in the late 19th century into literal. Um, I would hate to see what the lady looks like if in the in Song of Solomon if we drew her picture as she's literally described. <laughs> I really hate woolly teeth. <laughs> Uh, I love Psalms 87.3. We used to actually sing a song out of this psalm. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. He's talking to the city of God, right? It reminded me uh, this morning when I was putting this together of Jesus in Psalm 23.37. What does he say? He's he's up on the mountain and he's looking at Jerusalem across the mountain. Um, that's a whole thing in itself, And but let's not go there but as he's looking over the valley, from one mountain to the mountain that Jerusalem is built on and he starts talking to the city oh jerusalem jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her how often i have wanted to gather your chicks under or gather your children under my wing like a mother hen gathers her chicks he's he's talking to the city He's using apostrophe. And it's probably, for me, it's the most emotional passage of all scripture. It's the climax of the book of Matthew. Behold, your city is left to you desolate. And that's the word that's used in the Septuagint version for Ichabod. He's saying, I'm departing. My glory is leaving Israel. And as he had said uh, a chapter or two earlier, Behold, I'm taking the kingdom of God away from you, and I'm giving it to a nation that produces the fruit of it. If you don't understand that, you can't read the New Testament because the entire New Testament is about God want, has always wanted a people for himself, and he's done with the, the, the biological, physical nation of Israel, and he's rebirthing through Christ and the new birth a, a spiritual people called the church, and they are now the Jerusalem of God. They are now the Israel of God. It's a thing called replacement theology. And it's the essence of what all the epistles are dealing with. There's going to be a 40-year period where the church is rising. And Jerusalem is declining. And the presence of God is leaving the temple forever. And, and he is about to destroy it with the Roman armies. And from now on, the city of God will be everywhere throughout the earth embodied in the church. And that will be, and all the prophecies of concerning the people of God will apply to that new people, the church of God. That's what Psalm 87.3 is about. Psalm 148.3, praise him, sun and moon. Praise Him all, you shining stars. That's the ESV version. Uh, Anthropomorphisms is when you assign to God human characteristics or body parts to help understanding. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. Now, God is invisible. Does He have a hand? Well, the incarnate Christ actually has a hand. (laughs) Uh, But you know, that's referring to God act. Do something is what he's saying. He's crying out to God to do something. Do not forget the afflicted. Incline your ear to me, Lord. Does he have ears? He doesn't have ears, but he can hear. Rescue me quickly. Be a rock of strength, a stronghold of (laughs) safety. Lastly, mythological historical allusions. I'm running out of time, so i got to move on. A literary device that uses extra-biblical historical imagery from Israel's surrounding rival pagan nations to mock their false gods, uh, I love the story of Dagon, where the the uh, Philistines steal the Ark of God in the battle that um, Ichabod was killed, in, or well, his father, uh, and they have the Ark of God for a while, and they put it in the temple of Dagon, uh, purposely at Dagon's feet to be a sim- symbolic of. That that Dagon has conquered the 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 Lord, and because you know the, the, back then there was the idea that each nation had their God, and uh, that basically the God of the Philistines had triumphed over the God of Israel as it seemed like he had temporarily, but the Lord arranged that uh instead of the the ark of god being at the feet of dagon every night dagon would fall over and and they would find him prostrate symbolic of worshiping the god of israel in the morning until eventually his hands broke off from falling and his neck and uh so forth and so uh this verse Psalm 74 verse 13 you divide the sea by your mark you broke the head of the sea monsters and the waters there's no place in scripture where it historically tells us. One of the characteristics of the Psalms as uh, like Stephen's uh, speech in Acts 7 is uh, and Jesus does the same thing is prophets recount the history of Israel to make points about God. Jesus does it over and over. He tells the, He tells the Pharisees and so forth this is what God did and it's sort of a slap in the face, don't you? Didn't you read this? Don't, don't you know? You, in other words, you knew you knew these historical accounts, but you didn't get the message out of them. And so, but this myth, mythological historical illusion is something like there's no place where they, we specifically read about God wiping out a Leviathan or whatever, right? Now, the the reason for that is. Uh, those are the gods of the Babylonians and the Canaanites. And so when it says that in this verse, you divided the sea by your might, you broke the heads of the sea monsters, you crushed the head of the Leviathan, he's saying, you gave us the land, you drove out the Canaanites, you crushed them. The Babylonians came against us, but, but God is the God of the Babylonians whether they like it or not. That's what it's saying. Right? You know, it's, again, it goes back to, I love the the, 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 uh, the scene in the, in the Ten Commandments movie where Pharaoh, you know, is, is finally totally humbled after the ten plagues and after his whole army's wiped in the sea and his, his wife, who's in love with Moses in, in the movie, uh, not in real life, <laughs> is, is sort of mocking him and so forth. And uh, he ends up having to say, he goes, Moses, God is God. And uh, I'm sure I've told you a million times that one one time when I was watching that movie I was with a brother I was living with back in my single days and I actually like kicked my chair through it like all the way across the room into the wall. (laughs) And I was like yeah! (laughs) You know like Moses God is God. Uh, He probably had to send me a bill for the damage but (laughs) uh, it was probably worth it. But uh, right, so uh, upcoming messages. You don't have to remember all those things, but you kind of need to know enough about them to look for them when you're reading the Psalms. And you'll get 10 times more, you know, and what, you know, when you don't have this kind of stuff, what happens is you read the Psalms faithfully and you miss like more than half to sometimes 90% of the message. And part of what I'm doing in this series, the guide to the Psalms is I'm going to equip you that when you read the Psalms, you're, you're going to love them a lot more. Amen.